0: You have a a bulletin insert which you can follow along. There will be a few quotes in there, but also the title and the page reference. Applied Grace Natural Law. I'm using this term. I will explain it in a way that I hope that it makes sense to you. It's not a commonly used phrase unless you have a Catholic background. Catholics um, have developed the concept of natural law in a way that the Protestants have not. And um, But I don't want to focus so much on that. I want to focus on the obvious presence of God's moral values and His grace associated with that in the world. We um, are not talking about applied grace, natural law, uh, just internally. Last week, we based this topic on Matthew chapter 19, which was instruction that Jesus gave to the disciples about marriage and divorce. And a point that will follow us right to this subject was that when Jesus taught the disciples about that subject, he told them that as believers, as followers of Jesus, they had the privilege of going directly to the source and asking the question, what is God's intent for marriage? And in doing so, he quoted from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's the inaugural information passage about human beings and about the family, of course, and marriage being the core of the nuclear family. And um, he said, God made them male and female, created he them, and then, therefore, let not man put asunder what God has put together. But he didn't advocate that they base their value of marriage just on some verses or some rules or the law. But he advocated that they go beyond the law to what did God really intend by this relationship, by the concept of marriage. And that is a privilege that we as Christians, followers of Jesus, have. We can ask the question, what was God thinking? Well, we sometimes ask the question, what would Jesus do? And that's a good question. But a lot of subjects are not dealt with directly by Jesus. And Jesus didn't live them. Marriage would certainly be one of them. He didn't live it. Uh, Jesus was not married. And yet, you can ask the question, what was God thinking? And we have the opportunity to think in terms beyond the law. Or you might even say, greater what lies behind these things. The rules are a minimum entrance to the subjects but the intent of God, the God we worship is what we deal with on a daily basis and in the heart. Now I want to pick up in Romans chapter 1, if you have that, page 796. Uh, Some years ago Marjorie and I were on vacation and visited a large church and about halfway through this passage the pastor happened to be preaching on this passage and about halfway through it someone pulled the fire alarm so the entire church had to go outside maybe a thousand or 2000 people and as we read through this you you might think well i might know some people who would do that because this is a passage that is not deemed very politically correct in today's world but nevertheless i think it's important to note the apostle paul is approaching this based on the model that jesus gave what was god's intent not are the rules what are the rules or can you find a verse his whole way of reasoning is patterned exactly on the reasoning of jesus and we saw that last week so I want to start with verse 16, the passage uh, reference gives you one verse 18 and if you have that, just read with me through this. I want to go through this and then backtrack on that for some points. Number 16 is where we'll start. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So, here Paul is suggesting that the gospel is a real remedy to a real problem. So, what is the problem that he's talking about? Well, he, he explains it. And Apostle Paul is the theologian of the early church, he does the explaining and um, in systematic being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. We'll go right on into chapter 2, the first four verses. You, therefore... Have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment, or do you show contempt? for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Ah, I want to stop here because this, um, he flows right into chapter 2 there to talk about judgmental spirit. Because I suspect that when people read this or have read it or hear it, uh, they look at that and they say, Well, yeah, sock the judgment to them. Those people are pretty evil. And then you read that he says, well, what about you? Any of these things match you? He puts them all in the same category. I think it's a rather interesting way to do the sin list. And that's what it's called, a sin list or a vice list in um, in the contemporary days vice lists of that time were fairly common and he was using one here I didn't even count how many of the vices or the sins he puts in this category but you understand what he's saying here the gospel exists and was given because of what has happened to the human race you could say this is about the human race in general you could say that it's about the pre-flood human race. You could say it's about the post-flood human race. You could say it's about you and your family. You could say it's about our country and our society because the principles that he's talking about are all the same. He's talking about a downward spiral that begins when humans block out, intentionally block out give God an obscene gesture or shake their fist at him, or a whole group of people do it, this is what happens. It's natural and normal process. And essentially, what Apostle Paul is suggesting here, that at some point, God becomes a Darwinist. You know what I mean by that? God simply removes his protection and lets the natural selection process work. This is um, what is sometimes referred to as the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, Peter Atkins writes about this, and he's a professor of physics at UCLA, probably one of the most pr- prolific science writers of uh, of this decade, and even the last one before that. And he does a wonderful job explaining that. Not a, not a Christian at all. In fact, he debates. Christians against Christians on subject of creation and God. But he points out there that the second law of thermodynamics, which basically means things fall apart. Have you noticed that things fall apart? You probably noticed that in your own body, your own home. You notice it, do you, have you noticed that if you don't maintain your car, it falls apart? If you don't maintain your house, it falls apart? It gets cluttered. If you don't maintain your body, it falls apart. As you get older, you start to notice this. You can put a fancy title on that if you want, Second Law of Thermodynamics. Boy, that is impressive. In fact, um, I th- I've seen T-shirts with that on it. Um, I, but things fall apart. Things fall apart everywhere. That's the name of a book about life in South Africa that was a great classic um, I just what life does in this world, in this physical world, things fall apart. Without something making it come back together or holding it up, things fall apart. Kind of like gravity. Unless there is a force greater than the gravity lifting you up, you're gonna fall down. Now I know some people don't believe in the law of gravity, and I understand the desire to not believe in that, but. I don't think it's going to matter whether you believe in it or not. You're still going to fall down. And you're still going to fall apart. And, you know, there's actually some interesting Bible verses about ashes to ashes and dust to dust. The body decays and returns to the earth and so on. Now, we get that, right, from daily life. We get that. But here, what Paul is saying in his teaching on that subject, we need a gospel... Because you need an intervention as a human being because you are decaying and you are spiraling down unless you put your life back together. I don't think that's very easy to miss either. If you don't put your life back together with some force greater than yourself, instead of the second law of thermodynamics, how about the second step of... AA, or the 12-step process. Number one, we admit that we are helplessly enslaved, I'm paraphrasing. Number two, we accept the fact that we need a power greater than ourselves to dig us out of this pit, paraphrasing again. Ah, second law of thermodynamics and second law of the 12 steps, second step of the 12 steps fits nicely together because that's what this is suggesting what paul why he brings this up why he does this exposition well he concludes the exposition this all goes all the way through the first three chapters and the first he says it's observable from nature what god's order is for the human species you know that you do know that right this is not anything new i have a um, I have a quote here from, uh, well, you've got a couple of them in the insert, but I want to give you another one or two on this subject. Albert Einstein, who was not a Christian, said this, But also everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that some spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, one that is vastly superior to that man. In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of a special sort, which is surely quite different from the religiosity of someone more naïve. That was a letter that he wrote to a uh, sixth grader. And Francis Collins, you may know him. Some of you, I think, are familiar with him. He's a figure in our society today. Um, He was appointed in 2009 to be the director of NIH, National Institute of Health. And uh, let me read a quote from him, which came from our local OPB, Oregon Public Radio. If God is who God claims to be, who I believe he is, then he is not explainable in natural terms. He is outside the natural world, outside of space and time. Now, no one knows better than Dr. Francis Collins how easy it might be for scientists to play God. As the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute since 1993, what some call the most prestigious job in science, Collins has led the effort to decode human DNA along the way developing a revolutionary method of screening genes for disease yet according to this widely respected scientist the newfound power to read our own instruction book is no obstacle to faith in the existence of God he converted from atheism to Christianity when he was a doctor in his twenties after seeing how radically His patient's faith transformed their experience of suffering. And after reading several works by C.S. Lewis, some 30 years later, he stands by his convictions, positioning science not as substitute for theology, but as a subset of it. Now, I think that's an interesting way to put it. Now, the book he's referring to, uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis refers there to what is called the evidence from morality. Human morality, morality in societies everywhere in the world for the existence of God. Now, C.S. Lewis didn't invent that. He got that from Thomas Hobbes, who got that from, uh, uh, well, as far back as Socrates. Socrates first developed that argument that it represents the forms. And it's interesting that... These guys talked about the evidence because everywhere you look in society, all of the subjects we just read about are addressed in every society. Some minor exceptions, but otherwise generally so. Maybe not in the same way or the same form or the same application, but they all exist. A universal application of moral standards. Now, how could you explain that if it wasn't for the fact that God exists and God created? And I think that's a good argument. I'm sure people can... uh, find loopholes to plug into it but it's an interesting point that if God created us the world and then put us humans in it don't you think there'd be some intuitive way to determine what things to do and what not to do turns out there is it's called natural law just the same as there are laws of nature that Einstein referred to here that represents some sort of outside force. There is natural law that governs us. We don't talk about it much as evangelical Christians, but I'm going to read to you an introductory paragraph from a very important book. i got a tiny little book here. It's called The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States of America. Now, I know some people see this as the Bible and this other one. Is kind of adjunct to it. That's not a a correct or accurate way to look at it. But let me read the opening paragraph, which I'm sure you've probably heard before of the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature... "...and of nature's God, entitle them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation." We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution... Does not quote the Bible. Does not quote the church. It quotes natural law. And I think sometimes we make a big mistake by even as, as Christians. We say, well, what's the Bible verse behind that? Well, you know, I don't know. But there is something about the moral standards of God that exist in the human species that we should pay attention to. And what... Paul is telling them the subject of grace is necessary and applicable to the entire human race. There is not a separate moral standard for Christians and non-Christians. If you are a full-blooded human, all of the things that you read about in here, about sexual purity and sexual impurity and about family and all of these other things applies to you And them. The difference is those who have, as he says, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ have something with which to counteract that gravitational pull. That's what it's here for. I'm not suggesting that anybody who is not a Christian has no ability to live a decent life. I'm suggesting that the whole purpose of the gospel is to turn around. To give that reverse pressure So that you cannot say, I am only human, so I don't understand that. You cannot say, I am only human, so I can't do anything about it. You cannot say, my parents raised me this way. Or I am genetically predisposed. You cannot say that with a straight face in God's presence. He has provided a solution. It's provided a means by which you can deal with these issues. Be free from them, overcome them, and eventually not even have them. That's what the Bible talks about as heaven. Now I want to, uh, we'll roll this to the next one on your insert there. There's a couple of verses that I want to add to that, which I think would... uh, amplify on this subject before we get to the application points I want to do something else first I want to talk about the verse 28 through 32 furthermore since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done they have become filled with every kind of wickedness evil, greed, greed depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I wanted to repeat that, because when this passage is dealt with, quite a bit of the focus is on the sexual question. Homosexuality is most definitely mentioned there, as is other forms of sex outside of marriage or sexual perversion, as he calls them. But a lot of times, I want to skip right over this part here. Let me ask you a question. Let's, let's just um, let's just say that uh, some of the more severe descriptions above that are not um, something you're doing in uh, doing or engaging. How about uh, verse twenty nine? Gossips. Uh, oh, that's not very bad compared to all that other stuff. That's not bad. Oh, who said that? Who said that's not bad? It's the same as all that perverted stuff, according to this. You ever gossip? Well, you know, we church people got to have a few vices that are legal. Yeah, isn't that a cute problem? Well, we're church people, so we can just do those things. There are some approved sins, you know. And those are the ones that we prefer While we're condemning the other guys. That's exactly what he says. You're as guilty as they are. If you're a gossip. So don't put your nose in the air. And condemn those. Who are guilty of these obvious perversions. How about uh, slanderers? Well slander is a little different than gossip. That's where you um, actually try to harm somebody's reputation. By saying something you know is untrue. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Any of you brag about your accomplishments and your possessions and your family members? How accomplished they are? Hmm. Invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. You see what he's saying here. These are. Uh, this is a vice list because it represents human decadence. And we're all in need of a Savior because of human decadence. And we can, none of us, feel free because of human decadence. Now, I want you to look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 23. This is the conclusion that Paul reaches when he does this three-chapter development. You see God in nature, you see God in your conscience, and you see God in the Scripture. Chapter 1, 2, 3. And what is the conclusion? This is the conclusion. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, aren't you just talking about the gay people? Aren't you just talking about the Hollywood crowd? Aren't you just talking about the uh, the politicians in Washington? Aren't you? Isn't that what this is all about? Sin. Ah, <laughs> oh, you just looked at it. You just looked at it. We just looked at it. I bet you got in on one of those at least. And how about the next passage there? An end insight. The, bat, the first one represented the forgiveness and the release from the penalty of sin. Here he's talking about the power of sin. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And even finally, the removal of all of that from life. But you've got to die to get that. In the meantime, we have the power to defeat it in our daily lives. Let me go to the next quote there. This is not scripture. But this um, entitled uh, Confusing Categories. This is a quote from Rick Warren that I think is worth thinking about when we're on this topic of applied grace. Have you ever been in a church of spiritual snobs? We get it, and you don't. Do you know why people have a hard time accepting others? They confuse acceptance with approval. There's a big difference between acceptance and approval you can accept somebody without approving of his lifestyle he may be doing something totally contrary to the Word of God but you can accept him as a person without approving of the sin he's involved in I think that's a more elaborate way or a more, more um, um, a lengthier way of saying you can in fact love the sinner but hate the sin I, that, that makes sense right? I think that is so true that a lot of times it seems too simple. If you're a parent, you understand exactly what that means in your home. Not even talking about in the church like Rick Warren did here. If you are a parent, you know exactly what you mean. Your child can do something wrong, clearly wrong. Maybe harm somebody. Maybe even harm somebody else in your family. And you just, you can know immediately, instinctively, that you still love that child, but you hate what they did. People say this all the time, even about people in prison and uh, all kinds of things. You know, well, that's still my child. I love that child, even though I hate what he did or she did. And that's exactly what we need in terms of category distinctions if we are going to be able to do what Jesus did. Love without approving of the things that destroy. And then one other comment here that is part of our application here. God isn't dead in Gotham. Now that's actually the title of an article in Wall Street Journal by Kate Batchelder from a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. Reverend Tim Keller says with a smile... He's explaining that humans are more weak, more fallen, more warped than they ever dare admit or even believe. Then comes the good news. At the same time, people are more loved in Christ and more accepted than they could ever imagine or hope. Do you know many New Yorkers who believe that? Perhaps not. But on Sundays, some 5,500 city folk file into the church Mr. Keller founded 25 years ago, Redeemer, Presbyterian, at eight-packed services across three Manhattan locations. The Greenwich Village campus of which I attend on Sundays, one. The service is traditional, the congregation less so. Most who show up, if you can believe it, are single and under 35, whether bankers, lawyers, actors, or artists. I think that is a worthwhile point because um, we sometimes are under the impression That if we deal with subjects like this, people will be upset and not be interested. My experience, and I will just say this as my experience, and then I will bring up a point in the takeaways. My experience is that Christian people, church people, tend to be more squeamish about these subjects than non-church people. I don't think you will find a Muslim, an atheist, a secular humanist, or a Buddhist who would be at all surprised to come to church and hear, us, hear this passage of Scripture about the destructive nature of homosexual behavior. Not gay orientation, homosexual behavior. Or would be all at all surprised to hear us talking about the problems of divorce and marriage and remarriage and all surprised about, uh, to hear us talking about all these other things that... Paul very clearly lumps into the vice list. I think most people out there think that that's what church is about. To solve the problems of life. And I think that's what it's about too. Jesus certainly thought that's what it's about. He did not avoid any subject under the sun. The Apostle Paul certainly did not avoid any subject. But he did balance the... Conviction with grace. So here's the takeaways. Number one, if denial of sin rather than repentance is your personal plan of salvation, you're in eternal trouble. (laughs) Please take it seriously. I know a lot of people who just uh, say, well, I just don't believe in sin. I just don't believe in condemnation. I just don't believe in all that that, uh, labeling stuff immoral. Well, good for you. Does anybody care? Is it going to make any difference? It's kind of like saying, I just don't believe in gravity. So I'm going to jump off the peak of the church building. I don't believe in it. I, maybe somebody will care about that. I guess I have a question. Can I watch? Because this isn't going to work well. You can deny the sin problem if you want. But all you got to do is look around and see that all these behaviors kill people. They don't. It doesn't help people, including yourself, to just say, well, I just don't believe sin exists. Number two, if you have to gloss over someone else's sin before you can love that person, you don't. You don't love them. Now, I think this is important because um, I think that is sometimes we feel like we got to recreate somebody in an image that we can accept before we can love them. If you can't love them warts and all, as the expression goes, sins and all, need of a savior and all, then that's not real love. That's what Jesus did. Loved us exactly the way we are, but loved us too much to leave us that way. And I think that's authentic love. Number three, real seekers aren't looking for a watered-down version of the gospel. Truth matters, and they Know it. Number four, beware of confusing your personal preferences with morality. It's a good way to get into the Pharisee club, but not so pleasing to God. Now, I put that this way because that is an application of the way Paul wrote that passage. Did an exposition of something that's easy to identify. Sexual impurity, sexual perversion, if you will. And then he adds about 20 other things that a lot of people just want to gloss over because that's not their deal, that first one. Beware of confusing your personal preferences with morality. We kind of like to um, moralize about a lot of things, don't we? about what people should and should not do, what's acceptable in church and what's not, and what's, what, what, what marks a real Christian and what doesn't. It's a human nature phenomenon called Phariseeism. We turn the grace of God and the truth of God into our personal possession, and if you don't look like me, act like me, and do the same things I do, sing the same songs I like, and all these kind of things, then hmm, you're probably going to hell. Because I am the measure of righteousness. My preferences are what matter. Number five, having grace and compassion for those still locked in sin. Shows that you know what it means to be saved by grace. The most radical preacher about sin in human history was a guy named Jesus. The most radical preacher and compassionate expresser of love was a guy named Jesus. How did he do those two things? Because the fact is, they do go together if we are disciples of Jesus. Number six, for what do you need the grace of God today?